The subject for the evening talk is to, is to sit up and take notice. <clears throat> the, um, the appearance of these uh, tape recorders here is because sometimes uh, people like to uh, order the tape talks which are given during the retreats and as a result <coughs> these um, appliances appear not that um, you will hear anything very new in any way but these talks themselves are and can be regarded mostly I would say as a kind of reminder and nothing much more than that One of the areas in life which is of importance, of course, is the, the influence and the impact that the idea has, whatever it may be, has upon us. And one doesn't have to be a, a Greek philosopher to realize and recognize how important ideas are. And we find ourselves, due to a whole variety of causes and conditions, sometimes bombarded in, within ourselves with a tremendous proliferation of ideas. And our minds seem to get very easily overloaded. And there are ideas, therefore, which we would describe as being useful and effective and certainly worth implementing into life. And there's a whole spectrum of them which are best um, um, put to the waste paper basket. And discrimination and discernment in life is the ca capacity and the growing capacity to discern what's useful, what really is useful, and what's not really worth giving the time of day about. And sometimes we see, too, that in both a general way and in a personal way, and in the talk this evening I'll endeavour a little bit to touch on, on both, there are often ideas which we have which rather go unquestioningly. And there are ideas which we have which we need to look at also with more care in ourselves to see how they can be cultivated and developed. And if I just take just a few uh, examples and illustrations of, of what I mean. There's often a situation in life where certain areas of life build up a certain degree of importance. And we have an idea about them. And that idea, it may be in with regard to one of the institutions, it may be with regard to religion or different practices, and there's a certain idea about it. The idea has its impact. Sometimes that impact is one which lends itself to a growing interest. You read something, you hear about something, it stimulates ideas inside of oneself, a certain curiosity, it brings out of one an action to do something, to be involved, to explore, to find out about. 
And so there's a certain progression from the simple idea into an outer activity. And we need to be aware, of course, in our life of that movement of the idea, of it taking a hold, and what the flow is from that into the world around. <clears throat> and then there are <clears throat> ideas and, uh, and images which arise too, which actually bring the, quite the opposite kind of response. Something t- touches you, have an idea about, about something, there's a, a specific reaction, and one moves away from what it was. May maybe quite necessary, quite understandable, but one certainly takes a step away in which one rejects something and moves towards something else. And so we look at our relationship to life and we have this countless number of images of that which arises and we move towards and that which we move away from. So self-knowledge, there's a slight hum, Jamie, this is a bit lower maybe. And so self-knowledge, which is a very vast field of course, is certainly being aware of ideas, the impact that they have, what we move towards with them, what we move away from. Now sometimes, for example, we can, and we might take religion as a very, uh, I think, fairly clear example of this, we can experience something in the past. We saw something and we reacted to it. Perhaps our Western religion, Judo-Christian religion, and that had its impact on one and there was a rejection of it which took place and we decided to move on to something else. And it's not an usual, of course, that what we can be so much against in one form, we can so easily take up and identify with in another. And yet there can be tremendous similarities. Someone can reject um, Catholicism because it has so much ritual and ceremony and dogma and find themselves taking up... um, one of the more orthodox Mahayana traditions, which may have a lot of religion and dogma with it. It's easy the switch can go from, from one towards the other. And this, sometimes too, when, we, when in the past we have actively rejected something, and, we, and that idea about something actually sticks in our mind. There's the retention of the idea and the image the belief which actually has gone round it, and that which we have drawn conclusions about has changed. But we haven't. We're still stuck with what we thought is the truth about something, but it's evolved, it's moved on, and we're still with our petty belief or reaction about something. And religions and philosophy, and life is moving on. But that doesn't mean to say that what's happening with regard to our view and perception is moving on. And we might be getting stuck 
with the cherishing and, a, and the upholding of a particular view about something or someone which is out of touch with the fact. Sometimes things need changing, need working with and need evolving. And certainly, if I may just speak, say, of the Buddhist tradition, It's a long-standing tradition. It's running for two and a half thousand years. It, one of its great strengths is that it uh, has a, a, a tremendous diversity of approaches and practices which hopefully appeal and, and can connect with a reasonably diverse number of people. And not in order, as I mentioned last night, to take upon oneself another ism, but to see What's, what's useful in that. And it also emphasizes, which I find rather peculiar sometimes, it emphasizes change. And it's extraordinary that it should emphasize change and so often be so resistant to it. And so there's often this attempt to preserve things. And things need to be worked on and need to be changed. It's something essential being practiced and developed. I'll give you a very small example. Some of you are familiar with the center at, um, in Barrie, in Massachusetts, which is, um, I would say, in my uh, experience of conducting retreats in various parts of the world, is one of the most uh, significant retreat centers anywhere. It's a real powerhouse for, for meditation and has made a, cons made a considerable contribution. And the people who have gone there towards inner change and the significance of that. So while there, um, just um, a, few, a few days ago, and having made, I think, two visits a year now since uh, 77, one goes into the meditation hall and there is this rather lovely um, statue of the Buddha. But it's always, it's always been there. And it can serve, be quite useful as a reminder of a good posture or whatever. And when walking there into the, into the meditation hall there, just before you walk into the hall there, it's a very large facility, it um, takes um, more than a hundred people, there's the walking hall. And the manager at IMS has bought, saw it in a shop, um, a rather lovely statue in white of Guan Yin. Guan Yin is a um, Chinese a, a goddess of comp compassion. One might say... Um, a manifestation of the Buddha. And so we had, in one of the staff meetings, we had, and I put out the idea, look, let's, let's, um, let, let's dethrone the Buddha and replace this statue, which has been in there for so many years, with Guan Yin, the goddess of compassion. Get rid of him and put in her. This is <laughs> and so, because the system there... Um, and I think it's a very useful one, generally runs on consensus, that usually means that one rather has to, you know, to see whether it's all right to speak with the board and speak with the other teachers and, and get a, a general agreement. But sometimes in life with these things, the idea comes and one can spend months trying to get everybody's agreement. As it was, it, we had three hours of discussion over this, and in the, and in the end, I think, I, I felt quite sensibly we decided on direct action. 
And so, so the idea man manifested, it was shared, there was an agreement, and now uh, Guan Yin is safely uh, established in the meditation hall, and a s tiny little change has um, taken place. So, again, in our relationship to life, it's this inwardness and uh, looking and developing in such a way that the needs, I feel, to come out of it, not that that's an example, but to come out of it more creative idea, creative expression and freshness in life. And I do feel with this vipassana practice, it can be approached all too uh, easily as a kind of um, scientific practice. You know, it can be approached, I feel, far too uh, uh, mechanistically. You know, it's the kind of... Um, you know, kind of Newtonian idea of you, you do this, and then you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and then it leads to this. And I don't know if life is like that. You know, one sometimes only wishes it was. You know, if it could be so nicely and rather neatly prescribed for us. You know, that if you sit and watch your breath 250 times um, in a row, then insight will come. Something like that. Life doesn't seem to work on these prin principles. You know, and there are some people who have counted up the, the sensations running up the inside of their nose and have got to X number or whatever. But so what? You know? You know? I mean, we've got computers to do all this for us. So I feel that with, with practice and spiritual work and, and inner work, it's not so much a, that kind of form, a scientific style of, of doing things. I feel it's more creative. It's more in the field of art. I feel it's more in the field of the, an art form, a creative expression. And certainly in this regard, and with regard to the, these kind of um, practices that we uh, have here, I feel it's... There's a tremendous opportunity, and this is a slight aside, excuse my rambling on, but there's a tremendous opportunity to create new, fresh forms of spirituality. And it's hardly been touched. And I do feel, to the East to its credit, has developed and devised its own forms, but there's tremendous opportunity in the West for us to find new forms through literature, through poetry, through dance, through music, th through uh, um, carving and sculpture and pottery and, and movement, countless ways. And that is, to me, is the potential for that has hardly been explored. I'm not saying that that has to be brought into these retreats, there's too, maybe too much danger of it suffocating through too much religiosity and so forth. But there's a, I feel there's a possibility and a potential there. So the spiritual life and the creative life, which are so akin together, can find a form and countless forms to make manifest in this world. And this kind of practice, is, you know, I've got to slap it on the back sometimes, um, you know, is wide open for it because it doesn't have so much, uh, as I mentioned, in influence from elsewhere. One of the other areas, too, of uh, ideas, and sometimes the ideas that build up and images that build up, also creates, I would say, 
a kind of mythology. You know, mythology meaning perhaps it's got some origin, some kernel of truth in it. But as the time went by, it got increasingly more obscured. And then the, and then the, then the myth got created. And one of the myths which has got created that is somehow or other that truth or one who knows does, it doesn't reside in oneself. It resides somewhere else. It resides in another or in others. And there was a kind of, I would say, almost a myth through much of the 70s and, and 80s and with regard to uh, religions, Asian religions, in which people, I mean Asians particularly, were so, kind of elevated into a kind of surreal existence, quite out of touch, in which they were seen to be somehow the embodiment of truth and, and enlightenment. You know, and that, I felt, is part of the myth that was created, the inability to see the kernels of truth, to see the clear, where that was expressed, the clear expressions of it, rather than, so often, used, doesn't happen so much now, thank God, the, the used to happen was, I don't know anything, he, usually he, isn't it? You know, he knows. And there needs to be, a, and there is taking place, a certain change, a certain looking at that kind of mythology that we have created. That comes when people are clear and confident in themselves. Not arrogant, not conceited, not clinging to views and opinions, but clear and confident in a way in which one is able to listen and see this is useful, valid, appropriate, this can be let go of. And of course, not only that, of course what has also has taken place is that, and I think it's probably one of the best things that has happened, is that um, teachers and religious leaders and varying traditions, Buddhist and otherwise, are at long last being recognized as human. And they're actually, and there are, and have the normal human failings. You know, and just recently, um, uh, the, the idea of you know, being a guru and being celibate and transcended all of that, this one of these myths that was created, that one must transcend it all, um, it really has been um, it's one of those ghosts that has really has been laid to rest. And so some of you may have read the article by Jack Cornfield in the Yoga Journal. What was the title of it, Jamie? Something like Gurus and Sexuality. Something like on that. Sex the Sex Lives of Gurus. A very, <laughs> no, a very juicy title. You know, I'm sure it'd be a bestseller, and 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 in his Jack knowing lives here on the West Coast, made a tremendous and continues to make a tremendous contribution to establishing practice in people's lives, and of course has lots and lots of contacts. And when you're in this kind of uh, whatever Dharma business or whatever you want to call it, you know, you, the one thing about it is you hear all the stories. You know, count, you know, I wouldn't dare 
countless stories that one hears and, and uh, Jack quite confidently has read and heard and discussed and talked about and, and wrote this article. And I think it just, I felt it very beneficial insofar as it gives an air of reality to the humanness of every one of us, no matter what our function is. And uh, as you, many of you know, of course, and know him, good friends of his, that his book, which he has out, is called um, Living Buddhist uh, Masters, which is a kind of um, dis um, description of some of the different vipassana practices. And I had wondered, I would suggested to him that perhaps his, the title of his next book should be Living Buddhist Masters and Their Mistresses, or something like that. <laughs> but anyway, so in this practice of uh, looking and... S forgive me, Jack. Um, <laughs> Looking at these uh, ideas which, are, which, which occur, sometimes too, that one begins to recognize and see that maybe the embodiment of truth and the embodiment of awakening doesn't lie outside of oneself. And so rather easily our mind can rather react to that and it, then it goes the other way. And it's, I would say, if you don't mind me saying, it's just another extreme view. All truth is in you. This is another fairy tale. In that every, all truth resides in you or resides in, resides in me. And that somehow or other, if we can just slash our way through all this junk and stuff, then there's going to be this blazoning truth. And not only do we want to experience this blazoning truth, but we want to make sure that others know about it. This is... This is you know, you know, and then we can tell them, the truth is in you, but look to me. <laughs> and, and I feel it's just another extreme kind of view. And any kind of view which is extreme is based in ideas, often hearsay, please, please be aware of them. Truth can't be located like that. It doesn't have that nature like that. Now, in this um, inner awareness and, and, devel and developing, developing our meditation practice, as I mentioned, the creative and the spiritual, I feel, are, in this respect, are very, very close, are very, very much um, akin to, e to each other. And in that, in the course of the sitting practice, in the meditation, at times, as, as I mentioned, a great number of ideas surface. They come, they come up sometimes with tremendous rapidity. And it's, one hardly has time to recover from one, one set of ideas and wham, bam, there's, there's another. And so the, so the day is spent more in the abstract than in the actual. And in, in that, sometimes we, we, we have the idea, again, have the idea that if we keep thinking about something, and we keep thinking a little bit more, it will come to a resolution. It usually does when we've fallen asleep. It, 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 the, 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 the mind is, 
enchanted with ideas. And particularly the ideas which are most appealing, it seems, are the ideas in which we are firmly in the centre of the picture. It's the ideas about ourselves and who we are and what we'll do and who we'll become which are the most magnetic. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> totally divorced from reality. And we indulge in them and create them. And practice, as has been mentioned, much of it is letting go of the ideas and to some degree, correspondingly, it's letting go of oneself. It's letting go of imagining who we are, of imagining what we were, of imagining what we would like to become. And so often, isn't it, that within these ideas and the preparation, that's where our concept is of what we are. We don't really know. All we have is a, a bundle of ever-changing thoughts and feelings and views which have no substance to them, no reliability to them. And we build up the view, this is what I am, this is what I'm like, this is who I am. So we ask ourselves, well, what in, what's been happening to me today in my practice? What kind of images, thoughts have been going on? What kind of myths have I been perpetuating? What kind of fanciful thinking have I been indulging in? Whether I've been playing the victor or the victim, the successful one or the failure. So that we can just pick up on these things in ourselves, pick up on them sharp and, and early, so that we're not constructing too much around them. We have further to go than that. Now, with, as we sometimes go a little bit more into ourselves and some of the profusion of them perhaps begins to fade, then the more, in their own way, all ideas, the whole spectrum of them, in, the, in, their, in their own way are creative. But as we begin to recognize, we begin to sift through that some of the ideas have a certain creative expression to them. And, for example, one of the people who comes on the, the retreats um, is an inventor. And he said to me that he comes on the retreats and with the retreats he's, he says that he finds them very useful because he's making a fortune. He does a two or three retreats a year and it gives him all the ideas that he needs for a new invention. I'm not quite sure if this is the best motive for uh, coming on a, re on a retreat. So sometimes in our getting in touch with ourselves, more of the creative can come through. And one can get enchanted with that and what one will do or make or create. But it's not going far enough. It's not going fully enough. And perhaps, too, somewhere or other, 
what I would call the spiritual, has to be touched for the deeper elements of the creative to come out. The spiritual meaning in life, that sense in life of a, a deep accord with life, a deep, more than a deep connection, but a, a fundamental unity in life which makes for the open door to something else. And when that is beginning to occur, then creative will express something about life. Not art for art's sake, but one might say art for life's sake. Now sometimes with the idea which comes, and as I mentioned before, the religious form of idea, sometimes it acts as a spur one has the idea of reaching a certain state. One has heard about, heard about it from the various powers to be. And so one's practice becomes one of doing something in order to get somewhere else. And sometimes there has been and there is tremendous encouragement you know, to really strive very hard to move to gain something else. And sometimes uh, there's been the conceptualization of those uh, thoughts. And over the years, not surprisingly, is it, we're talking of thousands of years, certain words get a certain kind of charge to them. You know, enlightenment. What does it mean? Yet it, 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 it has a certain potency which has come sh- through sheer frequency of use. Or the word nirvana, another, another concept. You know, and one says, if, only, if I only had this, if I got this, after everything it would be hunky-dory and I'd just be able to hang out for the rest of my life effortlessly. I mean, it's such an appealing idea, isn't it? You know. So this puts pressure on one. God, I've only got ten days left. <laughs> Whatever. And that, that, in that pressure which takes place in, in our mind, the relationship to life and to the present becomes unsatisfactory. And so one says, okay, well, I haven't got those ideas. I, I don't, I'm not bothered with all of that. And one drops all of that, or even better still, has never even thought about it to have to go to the trouble of dropping it. But very easily, one sets one's sights in spiritual work on something lesser, something smaller. So that one comes into the meditation retreat and one thinks, well, I just want to sort this problem out. If I can sort this out over these days, then I'll be satisfied with that. Or if I can have a little bit more calmness in my meditations, I'll be satisfied with that. If I can get a little bit more creative, a little bit more depth inside, then that's enough. So sometimes we, 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 we get trapped in the field of our own ambition, wanting to really get somewhere very special and unique and distinct, or 
there's a shortcoming inside of ourselves. We reduce our marvelous potential as human beings to having a quiet mind. Either extreme seems to me utterly unsatisfactory. In these days, in, in, in our meditations, very important and necessary for us you know, being aware of what arises and what, what occurs, to see how much clinging and association is actually taking place. And to really be aware today, in the course of today, you know, in and amidst the drowsiness which comes like an epidemic on the first day of a retreat, still other things have been occurring as, as well. And again, within that, what, what has our mind gravitated towards? What actually has it taken up? And, so, and sometimes when I, and, and I'm looking around and one sees, you know, sometimes a person or two or three people perhaps uh, using, uh, leaning against the wall and using that as a, as a support. Now sometimes that's occurring um, because one is feeling a bit tired and one feels, oh, if I lean against the wall, and one starts to develop a rather intimate relationship with the wall. And, and, you know, it might be useful, but um, may not be. Or sometimes with the practice one sees you know, somebody is you know, lying, lying down on their, on their back, and very quickly and easily judgment can come you know, about, the pers- about the person. One doesn't know their motives. And there are certainly here a number of... Uh, people here, and rather common in the States, if I may say, people with um, back problems and back difficulties. I suspect America is taking too much on its back with regard to the world, and this is getting reflected socially. You know, it's a problem the British had a hundred years ago. <laughs> right, anyway. And, and so some, so person sees someone li- li- lying there and thinks, oh, and, and some reactive remark comes, or somebody else comes by and thinks, God, I wonder if they got mugged in the retreat. <laughs> so, it, 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 again, sometimes it's the real necessity, discomfort and back, and that one needs a rest in this area. So, again, we, we're catching the kind of reactions in what is happening with us, very much a central theme of our practice. And so that in our developing um, calmness and the cultivation of our meditation and being in touch with the breathing, it's not just for that. Truly. Now some, sometimes just phrases and sentences and paragraphs and things that one has heard Like so many things, as I mentioned, but if there's too much investment in them, too much association, identification with them, we begin to develop, almost without our realizing, a kind of philosophy out of it. And so, 
sometimes that is happening, I feel, you know, with all the tremendous contribution that therapy makes to self-knowledge and self-understanding, that too one always has to be watchful of some of the ideas that circulate, one of them being we create our world, or we create our own world. That, to me, that is taking things far too far. It's not to understand clearly dependent arising. And if we, if we do that, it can be all sort, it can contribute to taking responsibility, but it contribute, can contribute to feeling despair. God, I'm creating all of this. And so once again, there's a kind of ego investment, uh, an identification with, a taking up. Instead of just seeing things, things arise because there are the conditions for them to arise. If the conditions are there, they will arise, and if the conditions are not there, they don't arise. Why take it personally? Why, why make oneself into a creator? Well, sometimes the ideas can seem, really have so much truth in them, but they're at a certain kind of level. The ideas that sometimes arise is of um, everything has to be worked out. There are these things which are in the past, they're unresolved, they're unclear, it's affecting me in my present, therefore it's got to be worked out. You know, if, if one just believes, no, not even believes, if one just maybe has a tiny feeling that maybe, maybe, there's such a thing as past lives, that life is like a waves on the ocean which come and pass, come and pass, and perhaps you and I are small waves on this vast, extensive ocean of life, and, have, and the waves have, and we've been waves up and down countless eons. Now, that, what's that going to do to your idea about, I've got to work everything out? Because then one's really opened the door, Pandora's box, because that means working out that, the whole bloody lot. Can you imagine? One life is bad enough, but if you go, so, so if, if, if that's possible, even with all the countless experiences, even if one doesn't buy the, 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 those beliefs, one wonders, from a meditative observation viewpoint, from a deeper level, maybe, maybe, so much which we thought we have to work out and work through, doesn't ha actually have to be so. And with, with faith, with uh, meditation, with greater clarity, with greater well-being, maybe much actually just cancels itself out. That the imbalances, one to another, through finding well-being and balance in the living present, maybe lots of this stuff, which seem to have to be worked out, doesn't actually have to be. It's assimilated into our life. Because if it's the other way, working out all this karma, it's hopeless, useless, endless, and therefore must finish up in frustration and disappointment. And similarly too, in well, there's also a little bit too, one must be careful, if you don't mind me mentioning uh, these, these uh, 
things too. I realize it's been a long day and um, not easy to um, listen for 45 minutes or, or so at this time of the day. One of the other things too, just to be aware, just to ask oneself, not to take up, to ask oneself, am I engaged in my life in too much self-analysis? Is there too much of that going on? Am I ODing, overdosing on this, constantly examining? And again, when practice and, and observation has that spirit more of learning to let go, having the spirit of just learning to accept, instead of being too much caught up in this desire compelling desire sometimes to keep improving ourselves. Because when we keep wanting to improve ourselves and improve ourselves, there's some base there, isn't there? There's got to be some basis there, some feeling there of dissatisfaction. Let's have a look at that feeling. Let's not get caught up in the idea of improving, 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 improving. Let's look at what's, where's that foundation. Look in that more carefully. And perhaps if we look at that, perhaps, we might be able to see quite differently. Even to the point, finally now, even to the point where, like, when one hears the word hindrances, obstructions, difficulties. What arises in the mind in that time, in that, when you hear that, when, you, when that occurs for you inside, or hindrances come up, or there's an obstruction there, there's a, a difficulty here, there's a block here, whatever the vernacular that's familiar to you. Doesn't it, doesn't it to me anyway, doesn't it create a sense of before... I was like this. Now, experiencing whatever the hindrance or difficulty is like this, and if I can get rid of this as soon as possible, then I'll get to this. And so the mind has created a division. It split itself. Before this, before I got to the hindrance, I was like, just doing my meditation, just watching my breathing, and then all this stuff started coming up. And I got completely immersed in it. I can't see my way through it. I've got to get rid of that by one means or another, and then I'll go through that, and then I'll get to this. Do we have to see in that way? Do we have to regard life and experience in that way. Can we actually let go of the idea, deeply rooted it might be, the idea, this is a block, this is a hindrance, this is a difficulty, this is holding me up, this is troublesome or whatever. That we don't, act, we don't, act, don't actually see in that way. Then what's that going to do to your meditation? What's that going to do to the idea of practice? We don't see in that way. And therefore it's not an obstruction. 
then there's no place to go. So what will happen to all these ideas of enlightenment and liberation and, and, and finding truth, etc., etc.? Isn't, isn't that somewhere or other so easily a kind of distraction, an undermining of life? Now, our practice now meditation together. Let's truly give full attention to the meditation. Hopefully as freely as possible without any <coughs> preconceived ideas about it. Not even regarding what's arising as being a great block or source of difficulty. then perhaps there's the potential for us to discover great freedom, the truly emancipation of our heart and mind. And nothing in that emancipation, nothing whatsoever is denied. And that does justice to life. May all beings be in touch with themselves. May all beings be in touch with life. May all beings be truly free to see. So let's have a three or four minute um, quiet period together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.